When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we episode seven of the podcast in Assuming America, the Tour Sports Podcast, presented by Betfred Sportsbook. It is Friday, July 7th, 2023. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great holiday week. I know many people took off this week. For those of you who did, I hope you're relaxing. For those of you who did not, I hope that the next hour or so I can entertain you here on the Aaron Torres pod. Uh, And we are ready for a fun Friday episode, as we always do. And today's episode of the Aaron Torres pod is going to be a little bit different, okay? So for weeks now, I've been saying, next episode, we're going to do a mailbag. Let's do a mailbag episode. And then stuff pops up, and then because of it, we end up just talking about whatever the topics of the day are. Today, end of the week, early July, holiday week, it feels like a great time, though, to bring out your questions for this show. Again, Aaron Torres, podcast questions at gmail.com is where you can send them. Twitter at Aaron underscore Torres, Instagram Aaron Torres pod. And I got a lot of questions from the last couple weeks. It ranges from the serious to the not serious, from the funny to the not funny, college football, college basketball, recruiting, all sorts of good stuff, loaded show, fun show. And I think the cool part about this is it is the questions that you guys and girls have for this show. So today's all mailbag. And again, if you want your question answered next time, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Let's jump right into it. Should be a light show, a fun show. I guess I should say, let's get to the topic of the day. Topic of the day, there really is none. The topic of the day is that today is your show. Yes, you. I'm talking to you right there in the back. Yeah, in the background right there. Today's your show. And so I'm just going to jump right in and get to your questions. Let's get into them. If you have any questions, you know how to get a hold of me. Also, by the way, a lot of viewers on YouTube, you can always you know, send me a message on YouTube or whatever. You can figure it out. But again, today's a mailbag show about you guys and girls. Let's jump into it with the first question. First one, Mike in Alabama. Love Alabama. What's up, Taurus? Love listening to you with Ryan Fowler. Huge college football fan here, although, of course, I love my Tide basketball as well. What is your boldest college football prediction 
for 2023. So first of all, Ryan Fowler, uh, former guest of this show, very good friend of mine, radio host down in Tuscaloosa, does an unbelievable job. Love going on with Ryan. Uh, through the years, we only talked football. And then thanks to Nate Oates, we have talked a ton of basketball on the show. But Mike asked me, Torres, what is your boldest college football prediction for 2023? And I'll just say this. I don't know if it's a bold prediction or not, but it is something that I did say on air a few days ago when I went on with Ryan. And that is, I do not understand the Texas football hype. And so I guess my bold prediction is that with everybody else in the industry saying that Texas football is back, I am definitively saying that they're not. And I know what a lot of people are probably sitting there saying, like, Torres, who's hyping, who's hyping Texas right now, right? Like, like we know that Georgia's awesome and Michigan and Ohio State are awesome, and we know that LSU is getting some buzz. Is anyone actually hyping Texas? To which I would say, actually, yes. It was interesting, even in the lead-up to this show, didn't necessarily know I was going to talk about Texas, but I, if you did not see, the Big 12 media poll actually came out on Thursday afternoon And guess who was picked by the media who covers the Big 12 to win the Big 12 in their final season in the league? You guessed it, Texas, by actually a pretty significant margin. They got 41 of 70 first place votes. And oh, by the way, it's not just the voters in Big 12 country. Athlon Sports, I looked it up. I have the preseason magazine. They have Texas picked to win the Big 12 at 11 and 2. Lindy's did not do a preseason uh, win total projection, but Lindy's has Texas expecting to win the Big 12 as well. And so I bring it up. This isn't fake media hype. People in the media really love Texas. And I guess to a degree, I do sort of understand it. One, Big 12 is always wide open, but it feels like it's an extra wide open year. In the Big 12, Oklahoma coming off, obviously, a disastrous first year under Brent Venables. That's an entirely different conversation. Um, And oh, by the way, TCU coming off a national championship game appearance has lost a ton. Texas probably has the most talented roster in the league. And I would argue in defense of Steve Sarkeesian, um, they probably have the best skill position group and certainly the best wide receiver group in college football. They have A.D. Mitchell transfer from Georgia. Isaiah Nayor transferred two years ago from Wyoming, was very coveted. Xavier Worthy, five-star Jonte Cook. And so on some level, I see where the media is going with this. But at the same time, one, Texas pretty much every year has the most talented roster in the Big 12. And two, let me take it a step further. For a team to reach expectations or exceed them for a team, in my opinion, to be a legitimate conference championship contender, I have to trust either their quarterback or their coach or both. And I'm just going to be blunt. I don't trust either one at Texas. Okay. So, so like, like, like if you believe that Texas is the best team in the big 12, if you believe that they are a dark horse playoff contender and at 11 and two as a big 12 champ, you do like many have predicted, that means you believe in Quinn Ewers and you believe in Steve Sarkeesian. And I'll be blunt, I don't really believe in either of them. Starting with Quinn Ewers. Listen, really talented kid. I don't wish him any ill will. And let's be blunt, he was awesome in that first half against Alabama, a game that if you love college football, you were probably watching. 
And so most of your memories of Quinn Ewers last season, frankly, probably game in that Alabama game. You're like, this guy's great. This guy's unbelievable. He gets hurt. And then Texas obviously takes a major step back when he goes out of the game. Comes back for the Oklahoma game, another game that you probably watched, Red River Shootout. Yes, we still call it the Red River Shootout here on the Aaron Torres pod. And he had four touchdowns in that game. And so you're sitting there saying, well, Torres, he was awesome against Alabama. He was awesome against Oklahoma. Yeah, but did anybody besides me, does anybody besides me remember what happened the rest of the season with Quinn Ewers? He wasn't very good. No disrespect, just facts. Facts, not feelings on this show. And listen, I'm just going to say it. In the NIL era, Quinn Ewers is taking very good care of himself financially. I don't feel as bad kind of calling him out for his poor play. And that play was pretty poor for most of the games that weren't Tex- or weren't Oklahoma or Alabama. Did you know that last season, Quinn Ewers completed 58% of his passes? 58%. Did you know also, by the way, and I bet a lot of people know this, on the season, the entire season, and I understand he missed time because of injury, 15 touchdown passes, four interceptions. 15 touchdown passes. That is the guy that you're getting excited about is Quinn Ewers, 15 touchdowns, four interceptions. For as an example, in terms of what that means, Bryce Young, who obviously, uh, you know, was a Heisman caliber quarterback, was obviously unbelievable last season in Alabama. Bryce Young last season threw for 32 touchdowns, and it was deemed a quote unquote disappointing season, not so much for him, but for Alabama. Bryce Young, more than two to one. And oh, by the way, in the year before, Bryce Young threw for 47 touchdown passes as a redshirt freshman which is essentially what Quinn Ewers was last year. So Bryce Young, 47 touchdowns in his second season of college football after sitting out his freshman year. Quinn Ewers, 15 touchdowns in his second season of college football after sitting out his freshman year. So that's the Quinn Ewers part of it. But here's the other part that I I just feel like everybody is kind of missing. You really believe in Steve Sarkeesian? And listen, again, when it comes to Sark, let me say this. Obviously, Sark, had some personal issues, some personal demons at USC, and obviously prior to USC as well. I'm not here to make fun of him. I'm not here to joke. I'm actually very happy that he got his life in order. You know, listen, I live in LA. The stories that came out after he got fired at at USC were unbelievable, Um, and I'm happy for him that he has gotten it back on track in his career. He was incredible at Alabama as their offensive coordinator, but as a head coach, And again, I'm rooting for him. So this isn't a a tear down Steve Sarkeesian thing. It's just a fact. Steve Sarkeesian has now been a head coach for essentially a decade in college football. He's been kind of average for essentially that entire time. I think the, I think Gen Z calls it. He's very mid. I don't know if I use that right. Gen Z. I apologize if I didn't go back and look at Steve Sarkeesian's bottom line and results through the first nine years of his career. Do you know that through nine years as a Division I FBS, how about this, all of them in the Power Five. So you can't sit there and say, well, he started at um, Fresno State or he started at Central Michigan. No, he started at Washington, went to USC, then goes to Texas. And I understand Washington was very bad when he took over. But do you know that in Steve Sarkeesian's nine years as a head coach, he has a grand total of one nine-win season and zero 10-win seasons? You understand, one nine-win season, two eight-win seasons, 
zero 10-win seasons. I'll give you some perspective. P.J. Fleck has an 11-win season at Minnesota. Jim Harbaugh has five 10-win seasons in seven full years at Michigan. So you talk about, like, like, I'm not saying that 10 wins is easy, and I think we need to give credit to anybody who does it, but this is the guy that you're riding for in Steve Sarkeesian? Zero 10-win seasons, one nine-win season, and here's the other thing. Go back and look at some of those results from last year. It's the same thing over and over with Sark. Texas jumps out to a big lead. Texas falls apart. Sometimes they hold on, sometimes they don't. Just for fun, I went back and looked it up to make sure I didn't forget anything. Last year, these were some of the games that Texas played. Jumped out to a 31-17 lead on Oklahoma State, ended up losing. Jumped out to a 24-14 lead on Texas Tech and ended up losing. I will say, in Steve Sarkeesian's defense, that was at least a game that Quinn Ewers didn't play. They were up 17-7 against Iowa State, the worst team in the Big 12 ended up winning 24 to 21, meaning they were outscored 14 to three, essentially over the final second half of that game. They were up 17 to seven early in the second half. And so I just bring it up. This isn't an anti-Texas thing. This isn't making fun of hook them this and da 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 and this and that. It's to call a spade a spade. We'll see what happens. We'll see what ends up becoming of this. I just can't buy the hype on Texas and I just can't get excited. All right, let's get to the next question that was sent in uh, by you guys and girls. Again, always sending questions. Aaron Torres, podcast questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres, podcast questions at gmail.com. Second one comes from Rich in Lexington, Kentucky. Love Lexington, by the way. Hope to get back very soon. He says, Torres loved the show, but was disappointed with the most recent episode with the focus on college football recruiting, especially with Peach Jam this week. What is your biggest storyline going into Peach Jam? Okay. So a couple things here. One, if you listen to Wednesday's post 4th of July show, we did talk a little high school football recruiting. Okay. And I get it. Whatever. Some of you prefer basketball to football, but June has now become the biggest month in high school football recruiting. So we talked a little bit about it, but also to Rich's point, and by the way, when I say June became the biggest month, I mean, like there, it was a huge month, which led to a bunch of commitments over July 4th weekend. I think that makes sense. Okay, so Rich asked me, what do I believe is the biggest storyline at Peach Jam this year? And I think most people probably know, but this week, right now, this second, is Peach Jam. It is the number one AAU basketball tournament in the country, essentially the national championship for all of the Nike AAU basketball teams. If you love college basketball, there's a very good chance that your coach is there. And to me, the number one interesting narrative is this. And I say this as a guy who loves college basketball. We are, for the first time, starting to get just some faint, faint, faint whispers, just little tiny ones, that Cooper Flag may be the best player in all of high school basketball, just completed his sophomore year, going to be a junior. We got some whispers that maybe, just maybe, he might be reclassifying and heading to play college basketball a year early. So first of all, a couple things. If you are not a high school basketball recruiting nut, there are basically two players that really, above all else, um, have separated themselves as the best players in high school basketball. One is Cameron Boozer, who is the son of Carlos Boozer. He is just an insane athlete, all that good stuff, whatever. The other one is a kid named Cooper Flagg, who has actually taken the mantle as the number one high school player in America. 6'9", 40, he's actually originally from Maine, 
which as a New Englander myself, that's pretty cool. Uh, he's originally from Maine, plays at Montford Academy. They Those two actually played on Wednesday at Peach Jam. I think that was probably the biggest storyline. But on Thursday, let me say this. Cooper Flagg, as I said, 6'9 forward, originally from Maine, had one of the most iconic performances probably in AAU basketball history. This is what he did on Thursday afternoon. And he did it against, by the way, a good team from Texas named Pro Skills. They've produced a ton of Division I talent, some NBA guys. They have Division I guys on their roster. This is what Cooper Flagg did in this game. 38 points, 16 rebounds, 11 blocks, including the one to seal the win, and six assists. The game was broadcast on NBA TV, and let me just say this. I got a chance to watch. I was blown away by how good this kid is. Now, I've seen him before, but I ain't seen him play like this, okay? And as I was watching him, you know who he kind of reminds me of? Ironically, maybe, as we'll explain in a minute. Orlando Magic, Paolo Bancaro. Paolo Bancaro, of course, played at Duke. But if you remember Paolo at Duke, what was his ability? He basically, he kind of ran the offensive points, right? He'd catch the ball at the top of the key. He'd make plays for others. He'd take people off the dribble. He'd hit threes. I was at the game that Paolo Bancaro scored 21 points in the first half against Gonzaga in Vegas, okay? That's kind of who Cooper Flagg reminded me of. He's six foot nine, but he's running the offense. He's getting the rebound and going, but he runs the offense. He creates for others. He creates for himself an incredibly impressive offensive player. Three-point range, can get to the rim, can finish with both hands at the rim, which for a 17-year-old might not sound like a big deal, but it kind of is. I was actually blown away by his speed and finishing ability in the in the open court. In other words, a guy that that catches the ball at midcourt and just goes like a jet. Usually you think of the 6'1", 6'2", guard as the guy that can just get to the rim. That was this guy. And then what was equally impressive was his ability on the defensive end as well. Listen, I know I just said 11 blocks, but I give him credit, right? You're the star player. You're the best player maybe in, in high school basketball. And it'd be easy to kind of coast or it'd be easy to play on one end or it'd be easy to get your 38 points without impacting the other end. This guy competes on both end and every single time a shot went up, he was contesting it. Every single time there was a shot at the rim, he was contesting it. Oh, by the way, you watch the game, even when he wasn't at the rim, the other team was kind of looking out because they were kind of worried that he was kind of nearby. Again, I, I was blown away by how good this kid is. And as I said, people were talking about him and Boozer as by far the top two players in high school basketball. Now, where it gets interesting is this. Both of those guys are high school members of the class of 2025, which means they just finished their sophomore years and they will only be juniors in high school next year. Meaning they have two years of high school basketball left. Not sure if you're great at math, but that's what that means. Where it gets interesting, though, is this is if you look at the calendar and you look at where Cooper Flagg is born, how when he was born, I should say, there is a very good possibility that he could reclassify if he wants to and that he could play college basketball a year ahead of schedule. Let me explain. I've told you this, guys and girls, many times on this show. But remember, to be draft eligible for the, the NBA draft in whatever year it is, you have to be two years removed, or you have to be two things. You have to be 19 years old in the year of the draft, meaning we just had the 2023 NBA draft 
every person in that draft had to be at least 19 years old in the calendar year of 2023. They had to be born in 2004 or earlier. If you're 18 years old, even if you're the best player on the planet, you're not eligible for this draft. You also have to be removed from from high school basketball for one year. So those are the two stipulations to be draft eligible. 19 years old in the year of the draft and one year removed from high school basketball. And so what we've often seen is that if a player is going to turn 19 in their senior year of high school, they will, what we call reclassify, move up a year to speed up the clock. They can play their freshman year of high school of college basketball at 19 years old. They're draft eligible. Anthony Edwards did it. Marvin Bagley did it. Carl Anthony Towns did it on and on and on and on and on. And so I bring it up because where it gets interesting is that Cooper flag is born in the year 2006, which means that he will turn 19. I guess that would be, I'm not great at math. uh, Not, Next, not this year, not next year, but in 2025. And so if he stays in his high school class, he wouldn't be eligible till the 2026 NBA draft, but instead he can move up and be part of the 2025 class. And so where it gets interesting is in the lead up to Peach Jam, there has been a lot of buzz that he is going to reclassify and essentially take skip a year of high school to play college basketball a year ahead of schedule. That way, rather than being part of the 2026 NBA draft, he can be part of 2025, which means that he wouldn't play high school college basketball next year, but he would play it the following year in 2023, 2024. I hope that's not confusing, but basically number one player in America could skip a year high school, wouldn't play this coming season, but would play the following one. And so that's the buzz. That's the rumor coming out of Peach Jam. Where it gets interesting now is what's next. First of all, I don't think there is necessarily a timetable on this. We've seen guys start the reclassification process really early, sometimes even as a high school junior. But we've also seen guys take it up all the way till the finish line, right? Think about this year. Elliot Cadeau, remember that name? North Carolina was part of the class of 2024. He announced he was reclassifying this spring. So essentially skipped a year this spring, had worked up the credits, had the academics in line, ended up skipping it but played up until this spring in high school basketball. Others like Anthony Edwards have done it before the school year starts. So you go on and on. This kid could announce after this tournament that he's reclassifying. He could announce in the fall. He could announce next spring and still be eligible to play the following year. Finally, where it gets especially interesting is that it appears as though there is already an overwhelming favorite for his services at the college level. It is the Duke Blue Devils. And it's very interesting because you talk to recruiting guys and girls, and I'm far from an expert, but you talk to recruiting guys and girls, and they will tell you that for a player of his high profile, there really isn't that much buzz in his recruitment. And it's because essentially everybody thinks he's going to end up at Duke. And from Duke's perspective, I think it kind of makes sense because remember, this past year, who did they get back? Kyle Filipowski, their leading scorer, their leading rebounder. He came back for his sophomore year. Would he come back for another year after this coming season? I don't know. Because of it, it would make sense if he leaves, there's going to be a spot at the five, maybe a a stretch four for Cooper Flag. And I'll tell you this, man. I'm selfish, I'm biased, but I hope it happens. One, the class of 2024 is not good. He would immediately become the overwhelming best player in that high school class. It'd be good for college basketball. It'd be good for Duke. 
And from his perspective, I don't really know what there is to go back to play high school basketball for, right? You drop 38 points. You drop whatever it was, 38, 18, and 11. Like, it's done. You don't need to keep playing high school basketball for another year and a half. So we'll see what happens. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but it looks very good that over the next couple weeks, the next couple months, Cooper Flag, the number one high school basketball player in America, could reclassify, could be a part of the high school class of 2024. Immediately the best player would then probably commit to Duke, and we could already start talking 2024-2025 college basketball season here on the Aaron Torres pod because I think he would make Duke an instant national title contender. They already have one player in that class committed. That's a top 10 player. Isaiah Evans committed in that class. All right. First two questions went long. This is what I want to go ahead and do. Take a quick break. And when I come back, we're going to hit on some other questions. Uh, Kentucky actually has a summer tour next week in Toronto. We're going to talk about that. Uh, We'll talk about some other stuff. I don't know. I got a bunch of questions. I'm not even going to tease it. Take a quick break. Be right back. All right, we're going to get back to the show in a minute. But before we do, I want to welcome back our presenting sponsor, Betfred Sportsbook and the Betfred Sportsbook app. By now, you know Betfred's story started in 1967 in the UK, over a thousand shops in the UK, and they have now come to the United States and made a major splash. They are the presenting sponsor of not only all things Aaron Torres Media, but the Colorado Rockies, the Denver Broncos, the Cincinnati Bengals. And what I love about Betfred, Nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred does. I've been telling you that for a year. We have sent listeners of the Aaron Torres pod to Denver Broncos VIP tailgates. The Betfred suite at Cincinnati Bengals games is rocking. Betfred betters have thrown out first pitch at the Colorado Rockies games. Nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred. And here is what they are doing for you right now. How about this? Bet $50 on any game. Get up to $1,111 in free bets. Here's how it works. Download the Betfred Sportsbook app. Bet 50 bucks on anything you want to bet on. You automatically get $111 in free bets. But beyond that, you get up to $200 in insurance for your first five weeks as a Betfred customer, totaling $1,111 in free bets. I've told you for a year, nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred. They're the only book that I bet with. And I want to thank Betfred for being our presenting sponsor. All right, everybody. I am back. Gonna be back. back. Let's get to more of your questions. This one comes from Mitchell in Louisville, Kentucky. As I said, Kentucky, that's big tourist country right there. Now, admittedly, a lot of great tourist country across these great United States. Stores, Connecticut is tourist country, Tucson, Arizona, Fayetteville, Tuscaloosa, Knoxville, whatever. Love all you beautiful small college towns across the country and some of you big college towns too. Anyway, enough, enough. Here is Mitchell in Louisville's question. He says, Torres loved the show. What do you think of UK as they get set to play next week in Canada? Okay, so for people who do not know, Kentucky is one of many teams that has a foreign tour this summer in college basketball, right? College basketball, once every couple of years, you can go overseas, play a couple teams, whatever. So UConn has one this year. USC with Bronny James has one this year. Kentucky's is a little bit different, though, because they are actually going to an event called the Global Jam, where they are essentially the United States representative in an international tournament. 
So they're going to be playing against uh, national teams that have played together for years. And I don't want to focus too much on that event specifically. As an example, Baylor played in the same event last year. Baylor was a really good college basketball team. They went one and four in that event. So the competition is really good. I'm not going to focus too much on these games specifically. But in the bigger picture, I did think of something when it came to Kentucky for this coming season. That's something is this. And, and to be clear, just to reiterate, everybody knows I was pretty hard on John Calipari early in the offseason, but I give him credit for rallying. But my thought in general on Kentucky entering the 2023-2024 season is this. Is this the first time maybe ever in the John Calipari era that Kentucky's actually a little bit underrated coming into the year? Let me explain. Okay, so a couple things. One, obviously myself, like so many others, I do those way too early top 25s. In my most recent one, I had Kentucky, I think either 13th or 14th, kind of with the idea that they added some really nice pieces late to the number one recruiting class in the country. What struck me, though, I found very interesting, was other people who cover the sport seem to be a little bit more down on Kentucky than me. And I understand it hasn't been a great couple years, but we've been through it. They were a two seed two years ago. This year, there was one injury after the other. I'm not making excuses. I'm just stating a fact. But as I look at other people's coverage of Kentucky, it strikes me. I've seen a lot of people that in early June had Kentucky completely out of the top 25. And then even after they added four players in the month of June, Antonio Reeves returned after whatever that was. He withdrew from the draft, but didn't technically come back to Kentucky until a few weeks later. They had a West Virginia transfer, Trey Mitchell. They added two freshmen as well. Even after they added those guys, I saw a bunch of people in the media. Well, now I have Kentucky back in the top 25. I have them at 22 or 19 or 23, whatever. And it's no disrespect to those guys. But you really mean to tell me that you believe that with three elite freshmen, really five really good freshmen with those vets, that there are 21 or 22 or 23 teams better in college basketball than Kentucky? I'm sorry, I just don't see it. And that's where it's interesting to me about the coverage of Kentucky. I understand that the upperclassmen are not elite. I understand that this is a sport that is getting older by the year. I also know what history tells me. John Calipari's best teams are teams that have super elite young freshman talent. NBA lottery level talent, not just a five-star, not a top 30 player. I'm talking top five, top two, number one player in America type talent. They have those kinds of freshmen with the right veterans. And basically the beginning of the year, it might not be perfect, but as the year goes on, those freshmen get comfortable and they get better and better as time has gone on. And eventually by the end of the year, Kentucky is good enough to play with anybody in college basketball. Well, how would you describe next year's team? I would argue they have by far the best freshman class in the country with probably three future lottery picks. DJ Wagner, a point guard, Justin Edwards, a wing, Aaron Bradshaw currently injured a forward. They have two other really good McDonald's All-American caliber freshmen, both five stars, Reed Shepard and Rob Dillingham. And they have four really good veteran pieces around them. Antonio Reeves, Trey Mitchell, and the two returnees from last year, Ogana Kingsley, and also uh, Adu Thiero. 
And so when I look at this Kentucky team, when people are saying they're a fringe top 25 team, do you understand how good these freshmen can be? First of all, with DJ Wagner, listen, let me say this. And I said it throughout the season. Kentucky in John Calipari's best years, not even just Kentucky, go back to the Memphis days. Kentucky's best teams had an elite NBA level lottery point guard. John Wall led Kentucky to an elite eight, was the best team in the college basketball that year. Derrick Rose, if you want to go back to the Memphis days, played for a national championship at Memphis with John Calipari. Uh, De'Aaron Fox, Elite Eight, one shot away from, from going to the Final Four. I don't mean to bring back all these negative things, Kentucky fans. Brandon Knight, who was, I believe, a lottery pick, gets Kentucky to a Final Four. So I'm not saying DJ Wagner is going to be like John Wall, Derrick Rose, number one pick in the draft good, but can he be as good as some of those guys in college? I absolutely think so. I think he's going to be really good, really early, really fast for Kentucky. Beyond that, Justin Edwards, another five-star. Many believe he was actually the number one high school player in this class of 2023. Justin Edwards is elite. Justin Edwards competes on both ends. Justin Edwards is a guy that I think from day one is going to be elite in the SEC. And I know it's an older person sport, but who are the guys that we just talked about at NBA draft time? Brandon Miller was awesome as a freshman in the SEC. Anthony Black was awesome as a freshman in the SEC. So it can be done. And oh, by the way, Cason Wallace, when Kentucky actually put the ball in his hands because their starting point guard, Severe Wheeler, got hurt, was really good. So now you add those guys. Oh, by the way, Aaron Bradshaw, another guy that will likely be a lottery pick if he comes back. Early indications are he just had foot surgery that he will be back in time for the start of the season. Don't have an exact deadline. We don't know, but I believe he's going to be back. So you add those guys with the veterans on this team. Antonio Reeves, and I've said it before, he's a very good college basketball player. He was one of the best guards in college basketball by the end of the year last year. He was a guy that had averaged 14 points per game in the SEC, had 37 points against Arkansas in the final regular season game of the year. 22 points in the SEC tournament against Vandy. 22 points in the first round of the NCAA tournament against Providence. This guy, it wasn't just one game at Arkansas. He was awesome the final month of the season. Trey Mitchell, veteran college player. Adu Thiero, and again, Udana, Ugana Onyenso Kingsley. Talent there as well. So listen, as far as next week's concern, we'll discuss that maybe on next week's shows. But I actually think this Kentucky team is probably a little bit undervalued. Probably a team that is not getting enough credit going into the year. And I'm not making any promises on they're going to win the SEC. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. Because listen, Arkansas is really good. Tennessee is good again. Alabama has reloaded nicely. Auburn is going to be good. Florida is actually going to be good with Todd Golden. He re- he did a great job in the portal this offseason. Mississippi State's going to be good after making the tournament last year. But do I believe that this team has a chance to be as good as any of them by the end of the year? I do. And oh, by the way, do I believe this team is probably a little bit undervalued coming into the year? For the first time of the John Calipari era, I think the answer is yes. All right, let's get to the next question. Let's start to wrap the show, by the way. True Taurus fashion, I'm running a little bit long here, but we got about three more questions that I do want to get to. Uh, and we'll try to make them a little bit quicker. First one, you talk about going in a completely different direction. So we've done college football. We've done college basketball. Now, 
Darnell in Texas asked Torres, answer the age-old question, is Joey Chestnut an athlete or not? Okay, so I think everybody knows Joey Chestnut, uh, hot dog-eating champion. He's won, I think, like 15, 16, 17 of these things at this point. Um, Really had a heroic 4th of July. Hot dog-eating contest was going to be canceled. He basically said, no, 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 no. We're doing this thing. He wins another one. And so since he won that most recent hot dog eating championship a few days ago, the age old question in sports has been pretty straightforward. Is Joey Chestnut an athlete? Well, I'm here to say the answer to me seems pretty simple. Joey Chestnut trains harder than most actual professional athletes. Like as an example, I can say almost certainly Joey Chestnut actually trains harder for his sport than say Zion Williamson does for his. And so because of it, if you're telling me Zion Williamson is an athlete, and I think it's kind of debatable at this point. Well, guess what? Joey Chestnut is an athlete as well. Okay. So just for fun, I, I went I went through and found Joey Chestnut's training regimen for the hot dog eating contest. Here are some of the things that were said about Joey Chestnut's hot dog eating training. This is from an article, by the way, from Business Insider. I want to give them credit. Don't know if they snagged an interview or what. But an interview with Joey Chestnut in Business Insider from July of 2023. So this is recent. So what Joey Chestnut does to get ready for the hot dog eating contest. At the end of April, more than two months before the competition, he starts doing a practice contest every week. Chestnut's basement is even set up with speakers and flashing lights to help mimic the Coney Island environment. Quote, with the contest, it's amazing because there are people yelling at you and the MC with music. But with practice, sometimes it's really, really hard to get excited to eat. So I work really hard to take every practice seriously. Again, wish we could say the same about Zion Williamson. He, the story continues. It takes a week just to prepare for each practice round. Chestnut starts by doing a two-day cleanse of water and lemon juice, the same cleanse he uses before the actual competition. Most people, he says, when you eat food, it takes nine or ten hours to really digest it. After I do a cleanse... Things are moving quickly. He continues, in between practices, I'm working on my jaw and my throat. I have a weird routine of exercises I do that really make those muscles in my jaw and throat much stronger. They're moving 15 to 16 pounds of food plus another gallon of water. Most people's jaws can only move like a pound and a half of food in an hour. So these little muscles work really hard. I figured out how to push them. Again. I mean, I don't know how you can listen to that and say that this guy is not an athlete. His jaws are pushing through 15 to 16 pounds of food in 10 minutes. That's all you need to know. The average person, you get less than a pound in an hour. He's doing 15 to 16 pounds in 10 minutes plus a gallon of water. I think it's decided. This isn't a tear down Zion, by the way. But imagine if Zion worked half as hard at his craft as Joey Chestnut does at his. That's why Joey Chestnut is the GOAT, ladies and gentlemen. Let's keep it going. This one is just kind of a verbal write-in. So I have a good friend, Ed, who listens to this show. We've talked for years. He's a big college basketball fan. And one thing that he has asked me for years, he keeps saying, Torres, I grew up in the, the 80s and 90s, and basically UNLV was my team. And so this isn't an actual question that was written in, but Ed has asked me for years, why has UNLV never been able to recapture the glory of the 80s, early 90s under Jerry Tarkanian. They win the 1990 National Championship. 1991, they go back to the Final Four where they lost as an undefeated team to do. All right, so I think this is a fascinating question. 
And I think it's it's one of those questions, right? Is that sometimes when something goes so bad for so long, and by the way, if my memory serves me correct on UNLV, I don't even think they've made a final four since like basically, or they haven't even made a like sweet 16. I think they've made one sweet 16 since Jerry Tarkanian left. Let me check on that really quick. Yes, they've made one sweet 16 since 1991. That was 2007. Quick trivia. Who knows the answer to this? Who was the coach of that team? It was Lon freaking Kruger, uh, who of course, most recently coached Oklahoma. Lon Kruger's son is now the head coach at UNLV. But so anyway, long story short, Ed asked me for years, why has UNLV never gotten back? And I think it's a couple different things. One, I think it's administrative incompetence at the highest level. You can go back and look. So first of all, I, I think there's this belief among every administrator, every school, every sports fan, that when your school's at the top, like it didn't like that it's easy, that it didn't take work to get there and that you're going to stay there forever. And I think what a lot of schools have to learn the hard way is it's not easy to get to the top and it's certainly not easy to stay at the top. So as a UConn fan, I can talk about that, right? You know, seven, eight years, it was a really down cycle until Dan Hurley got this thing going again. USC football, I think they thought they could hire whoever at AD, they could hire whoever at at head coach, and it would continue to work out, and it hasn't. And I think that was the problem with UNLV. You go back to when Jerry Tarkanian was fired, it was actually the school president that was basically turning him into the NCAA, Robert Maxson. You can go back and look through the history. There's still plenty of articles online, but essentially Jerry Tarkanian basically thought he was being sabotaged by Robert Maxson. There was a practice that was recorded that was then sent to the NCAA. They believe it came from Robert Maxson's office. So first of all, Jerry Tarkanian was sabotaged by his own AD. From there, I think there's a couple other factors as well. One, they just got the first hire wrong, and then it snowballed from there. They brought in Roley Massimino like five years past his prime. Uh, From there, just a bunch of other guys, and it hasn't quite worked. I will say, you know, like I said, I think it's a bunch of factors, really. I think part of it for UNLV has just been flat bad luck, okay? So check out this recent history for UNLV. 2016, they get rid of Dave Dave Rice, who played for Jerry Tarkanian. You know who the number one candidate was for that job? You know who they actually had on campus for that job? Mick Cronin, UCLA, Big Mick Energy, baby. He was at Cincinnati, flew out to UNLV. Like there is video of him getting off a plane in Las Vegas and there's mixed reports. Did did he really have interest in the job? Was he trying to leverage Cincinnati? I don't know Coach Cronin well. My guess is that he was probably seriously considering it ultimately decides to return to Cincinnati before then, by the way, going to UCLA. Oh, by the way, 2016, they don't get Mick Cronin. Who's the backup choice? Do you remember who UNLV hired? It was Chris Beard. It was Chris Beard. They hired Chris Beard, had Chris Beard as the head coach for about two, three weeks in 2016. Here's the crazy part. His buyout was basically nothing. And when Texas Tech opened up, if you remember, the Texas Tech job opened um, because Tubby Smith ended up leaving. And at the time, um, UNLV in Chris Beard's contract, it was like a $1 million buyout to get him out of the contract. Texas Tech was where he had coached previously. Texas Tech was where his daughters lived in that Lubbock area. And so I know it sounds like cliche. Oh, it was a dream job for Chris Beard. Well, Chris Beard, it was a dream job, Texas Tech, and then he obviously left for for a second dream job at Texas. 
But those were the two jobs that he always coveted. And so you had Chris Beard. His buyout is basically nothing. And here's the crazy part. You want to know the craziest part of all that? My understanding was when Chris Beard left UNLV, they actually weren't that upset because they got a million dollars in buyout money that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten. And they were like, oh, it's a cash influx. We just hire whoever they want. They hire Marvin Menzies. It doesn't work out. Here's the crazy part. Do you remember who they hired to replace Marvin Menzies? TJ Otzelberger. Do you remember what happened with TJ Otzelberger? He's there for two years. His dream job is Iowa State. That's where he was an assistant. That's where he met his wife. What ends up happening? They open up. He ends up leaving. Year one, he takes Iowa State to the Sweet 16. Year two, he takes them to the NCAA tournament. So you can talk about all the different factors at UNLV. They got the right coach three different times. Couldn't close the first time. Buyout wasn't big enough the second time. And I would argue if Chris Beard, if Texas Tech doesn't open, Chris Beard turns UNLV into a power. If Iowa State doesn't open, I think uh, TJ Otzelberger ends up having a ton of success there. Now, instead, they're with Kevin Kruger. Finally, what I would say is I do think the other variable is I mentioned the administrative incompetence with the school president that, that fired Tarkanian. Here's the other factor, though. Here's the other factor is there has been a lot of turnover, not only in the basketball coaching staff, but with the AD as well. Four different athletic directors since 2013. So four athletic directors over a 10-year period. Um, and let's just say, I think there was one or two of them, I won't name names, that saw UNLV as a stepping stone job. And unfortunately, too often in college sports, when an AD is looking to go from one job to another, What's the best way to prove that you know what you're doing as an AD and you deserve a big-time job? You got to hire your own people. And so my understanding is there was probably two or three coaches through the years that were probably fired ahead of schedule, maybe not three, but one to two, that were fired ahead of schedule because the AD wanted to prove, I can hire my own guy. Let me show you how good I am with these hires. So you factor all of that in, and that, in my opinion, is why UNLV has struggled to put a competitive product on the floor in basketball. Final question, we'll get out of here because, you know, like I said, I think we've done, what, about 35 minutes of mailbag stuff. Ah, okay, where is this question? I'm going to pull it up. So I got a guy named Gary. Shout out Gary, who is a diehard UConn fan. Love Gary. I think every time UConn offers a prospect, Gary wants to know, Torres, are we getting him? So Gary sent in this question. Love you, Gary. Appreciate your support. He says, Torres, what's your projected UConn 2024 recruiting class? For me, it's Tyler Betsy, Isaiah Abram, Patrick Ngaba, Ahmed Noel, and VJ Edgecombe. How about you, Torres? Okay, so let me say a couple things. One, I'm not going to break down everybody on that list and all that good stuff. What I would say is from the UConn perspective, something does stand out. They are at a very interesting time for me in the ascension of this program. And I'm not talking about, are they going to go to the big 12? Are they going to stay in the big East? Whatever. What's interesting to me about UConn basketball at this exact moment is that UConn just built a national champion, essentially getting really good high school players, but getting guys that they could develop, getting guys that would stay in the program for two or three years, getting guys to believe in what Dan Hurley sold them during the recruiting process. I've talked about it before. Jordan Hawkins, who was just a lottery pick, was like a fringe top 50 recruit coming out of high school. Now, I understand it was the COVID year. Nobody could get on the road to evaluate. 
if people were on the road, I think he would have been ranked much higher. But Andre Jackson, who was picked in the second round by the Milwaukee Bucks, fringe top 50 recruit. Adama Sonogo, really good high school player, probably, you know, top 25 to 30, but he wasn't can't miss and was developed in this program. By the way, Donovan Klingon, a potential lottery pick next year, was a fringe top 30 player coming out of high school. Alex Caravan wasn't highly rated, averaged double figures nearly last year for UConn. And so I bring it up because I think this recruiting cycle is an interesting moment in time for UConn basketball because they are going to be able to get a higher caliber of player. And there's a higher caliber of player that is interested in the program that I don't think was even interested a year ago, let alone two, three, four years. And so I think the challenge for Dan Hurley, but also the excitement, listen, it's fun to recruit really good players, but making sure to recruit the players that you believe still very much kind of fall in line with who you are and what you're about. Right now, UConn, and we'll see if this changes. Right now, UConn's not the one in none school. It's not Duke. It's not Kentucky. It's not come in, come out, leave in a year. Dan Hurley said this a few weeks ago, if you remember. He said something about, you know, we don't just bring in five-star recruits and babysit them. We coach them, we develop them, all that good stuff. So it'll be interesting for me to see, do they go after that higher caliber player or do they stick with the guys that they believe they can develop and it'll be interesting to see. Now, to Gary's question specifically, I'm not going to go through that whole list because the one thing I do think about recruiting is that, in my opinion, it's just something that it's not as cut and dry, especially in July, of like, who are you going to get, right? So you think back to last year, July of this time last year. I think most people thought DJ Wagner was probably going to Louisville. He ends up at Kentucky. I think a lot of people thought Aaron Bradshaw was going to Louisville. He ends up at Kentucky. Um... I'm trying to think of other guys, you know, KJ Evans, a five-star kid. Everybody thought was going to Arizona. He ends up at Oregon. So a lot of stuff changes. But what I would say is of the players that, um, that Gary mentioned. So first off, VJ Edgecombe, top 25 prospect. Uh, he went to the same high school as one of UConn's current freshmen. I believe Jaden Ross is the kid's name. They just offered this kid last week. And I think it's way too early to know. Uh, Isaiah Abrams, a forward that all the crystal balls are in for UConn. So I suspect UConn is in pretty good shape with him. Tyler Betsy, interesting story. Six foot eight forward from Windsor, Connecticut. Windsor CT stand up about two towns over from where I grew up now playing at St. Thomas More. Uh, very early in his recruitment, he took a couple of officials this offseason, including to UConn. Would think UConn's in really good shape. The one guy that I really like that you mentioned, though, Gary, Ahmed Noel. He's a six-foot point guard out of, I believe, the Philly area. And really, kind of what I was talking about. Like, 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 he's a guy that you watch the film of him. He looks a lot better than you would expect based on his recruiting rank. He's a four-star, but a top 30 player nationally. They tell me the 2024 class is bad. If there are 30 guys that are better than him in this class then the class is a lot better than people are giving it credit for because I think this kid is a really good player. I have watched a little bit of him. I think he's a very good player. That's the guy that I would want if I was UConn. Now, it remains to be seen. Do they get him? I think the other thing is, you know, listen, a couple things. One, uh, college basketball is a guard-driven sport, so that's part of it. Um, On top of that, I would also say that beyond the fact that it's a guard-driven sport – It's that, uh, you know, it's that not only has not only is it a guard driven sport, 
but it, it, it's a sport where, um, you know, it, UConn, I think, is going to probably lose a five-star freshman off this year's roster, Stefan Castle. So that's part of it as well. Uh, Amon Noel, by the way, has named a final a group of finalists that includes UConn along with Georgia Tech and Tennessee. So we will see what happens with him. Should mention, by the way, I think Kentucky is in that mix as well. But he's the guy, if I'm a UConn fan, that is the guy that I want because I think you're, you know, you can never have too many guards. But then on top of that, yeah, so his final four, by the way, is Kentucky, Georgia Tech, Tennessee, and UConn. Can't have too many guards. I think he's an NBA dude, even though he's a little bit smaller. At the very least, a very good college player. That is the guy that I would want out of this class. Also feel really good about Isaiah Abram. All right. I think that is it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. That that was fun. Some of those questions went a little bit long, so forgive me. But with that said, uh, I thought it was a fun episode. Again, as I've said a few times, if you want to get in on the action, you can always uh, DM me, Aaron Torres uh, email Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Aaron underscore Torres, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com again is the email. So with that said though, I do think it is time for me to get out of here. I'm rambling. It's been a long day, but it has been fun. It is time for me to get out of here though. If you're not subscribed to the Aaron Torres pod, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon music, Google music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure to subscribe, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. It is time for me to get out of here. Thank you guys and girls for your support. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick, you have had unblock me, bro. I'll be back on Monday. Don't know what we'll talk about. New episode, though. Aaron Torres Bob.